right. Another lovely day, sort of. Sort of overcast, isn't it? It was when I looked outside, anyway. Indeed. The Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. <laughs> and yes, yes, things are things are afoot. I am streaming live on the WORD Facebook page. I would if I pushed the go live button. Let's, let's try that. Let's, I will be streaming live on the WORD Facebook page in just a second. Boom, there I am. I'm streaming live there now and the... And uh, the podcast is available via the free Odyssey app. Found out something the hard way about the free Odyssey app, too. So, like my other podcast, Lock and Load with Bill Frady is on there as well. And apparently, my RSS feed that I'm trying to get away from, people were running into issues with that. And if you go to the Odyssey app and you're looking for any of the podcasts there, it's just easy peasy. So, the free Odyssey app rules! So, you know, woke, the wokeism, you know, uh, when, when, when economic and social and health and environmental imperatives jostle for top spots in virtue, how could they be ranked? They're, they're actually falling over each other trying to get in it. And some, in order to... See, it all becomes about the latest shiny for them as well. See, the shiny always matters to the woke. So, now they want to have a return of the face mask mandate. And, uh, and here's what they're saying. We can certainly stop it making as many mutations by stopping it infecting as many people. If we block its transmission, if we wear a mask, if we get vaccinated, if we do social distancing. But is that free? Like, let's look at Hayatullah Khan, a laborer in Afghanistan. He makes, uh, he was making $1.50 a day during the coronavirus pandemic. So, would, you know, would he choose between buying that mask or buying the food? Now, that doesn't necessarily cause a resource conflict because you just once again go tax the billionaires and give Hayatullah Khan a free mask, free food, maybe both. And now we're going into a whole new new venture, woke in economics, where payments are made and intentions and virtue pays for everything. And here's the thing about this. This is their new catchphrase. When all of this goes wrong, the woke look at you with a look of compassion and say, we meant well. <laughs> but here's the problem. When there's more than one concurrent woke existential crisis, they have to compete against each other for these scarce resources because, you know, <clears throat> the reason for the competition is because this whole unlimited stash assumption is also false. This is a theory that the world can be remade and wealth redistributed without limit because billionaire tax revenue and the hoarded riches of the privilege are endless. And productivity is invariant with respect to competence. 
Unfortunately, you know, billionaire tax revenues are not endless. Productivity is not independent of skill. Wealth is not finite. Everything has to continually move. Once we grind to a halt, everything stops. Well, now we're, now we got issues. Wealth cannot continue to be built on nothing. Productivity is going to be based upon some sort of skill set. In the psychology of uh, woke economics, so scarcity does not exist except as the byproduct of greedy theft perpetuated by the evil billionaires. Even as they ban farming because of carbon emissions, they think that unlimited food can be bought from the store. They think that shops can be opened and closed like your Christmas blinker lights. Electric cars can all be just plugged up to the electricity without any sort of consideration about how that electricity is being generated. And these are minor de details. If the will and mandate suffice to bring resources into existence, you know, unlimited money can be found in the stash to redress it. All they have to do is say, the world will end if you don't do this. By invoking the precautionary principle, masks can be required. Gas boat stoves are banned. Children are chemically altered. We're told that children kill themselves by making decisions every day. They make decisions. Big decisions, right? By doctors. It's a big decision when the child kills himself. And then, on the other hand, we're told that we have to give them puberty blockers and let them mutilate themselves and everything else and make a decision as to whether they want children when they're 30 or 40 when they're 12. And here's the thing about all of this stuff. Just thinking it doesn't make it so. Sooner or later, reality intrudes the resource competition, forces them to face the woke problem of evil. And it's just like we used to sing in the military. Every, nothing in this world is free. Wind kills birds. Batteries are made with rare materials mined by African child labor. Everybody that's a vegan has to have their avocados flown by air to first world tables. And when they look at that reality, when it's presented to them, their realization is rage, immense anger. Because capitalism has forced these cruel choices upon they, the so pure of heart. It is a big dilemma for them, theologically. How can a just movement consisting exclusively of all loving pronouns motivated by effective altruism, how can that be the cause of all this evil? Can that dark shadow at the end of the hall that appears briefly when we switch off the light, is that us? That's a problem when you have to ask, that, so you ask yourself that question. Now, the most far-seeing progressives accept this existence of the uh, of real-world costs. And then they, once again, they have another rationalization. They justify them by invoking the ultimate result. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Never mind the broken eggs if the result was the worker's paradise, world peace, the planet saved. Woke activism 
is governed by the economics of the unreal. It is both bizarre and a bizarre. Religious goods are exchanged at high human prices and nobody's able to say if that was a good sale. And supermarket rules do not apply. Was shutting down the world worth saving it from COVID? Would 1.3 million cattle be culled in Ireland to reach the anticipated government target for reducing greenhouse gas? We live in a world right now where money's lost meaning. Because everybody believes there's this inexhaustible stash and government spending, the answer, will be determined by politics. It's interesting that the market in virtue is controlled by the side with the bigger megaphone and the more plentiful ammunition. Vice. The saying is, vice adjudicates the economy of virtue. And it doesn't really matter if it didn't make any sense at all because, you know, after all, the woke, they meant well. That just, hey, that just makes everything okay. Sweetwater, Texas, we're going to talk about that in just a second. Because what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. All right, there is no such thing as renewable. Remember I said that. <laughs> the the uh, Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. I am streaming live on the WORD Facebook page, and the podcast is available at uh, both odyssey.com, 98.9, WORD.com, and on the free Odyssey app. Go check it out. Seamless download. Sweetwater, Texas, very unique place with a special history. Uh, it's derived from the word for, from the Kiowa I, uh, Indians. They were a nomadic tribe that they hunted through what is, they called it Mobiti, which is in English, Sweetwater. And, uh, well, they're being sort of subjugated. You see, and this is coming uh, out of a Texas Monthly. Officials in Sweetwater say an out-of-state company has made their town a dump for the seldom-seen trash created by renewable energy. Sweetwater has unwittingly become home to what is possibly the world's largest collection of unwanted wind turbine blades. Now, if you don't already know this, wind turbine blades at this point in time cannot be recycled. So... They usually end up in a landfill. According to a study published in June of this year in the Science Scientific Reports Journal, 2.4% of turbine blades must be decommissioned every year. And per the United States Geological Survey, there are more than 70,000 of them. So we're talking 5,100 blades every year just in the U.S. And they become garbage. The blades themselves can weigh anywhere from 5,200 pounds each to as much as 27,000. 
That makes between 27 million and 138 million pounds of trash bound for landfills annually. So back to Sweetwater. In 2017, a Washington State company called Global Fiberglass Solutions, they came along. They, 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 they had a new, exciting way to repurpose the blades. And since then, they have been dumping the blades in the far-off land of Sweetwater, Texas. Even the managing director himself of Global Fiberglass Solutions admitted that only a fraction of the stockpile had ever been recycled. But then there's the uh, testimony of Pamela Meyer, a resident of Sweetwater. When forklifts deposited the first of these in a field behind the apartment complex where Pamela Meyer lives, she wasn't initially bothered, but then the blades kept coming. Each was cut into thirds, with each segment longer than a school bus. Thousands arrived over several years, eventually blanketing more than 30 acres in stacks rising as high as basketball backboards. Every few dozen feet, a break among the stacks leads to an industrial hedge maze. Now you would presume that they couldn't look any worse than the one they are erect and functioning. But there's a picture out there on uh, Twitter or X or whatever it is. And the, oh wow, they have there. They, they, they refer to it as the Blade Graveyard. With more than a thousand blades sitting plumb next to the town cemetery, as they say on X. But you see... There's a problem here because the green aristocrats cannot be bothered by this little, you know, by this nonsense. They're on a mission to save humanity. And we also get this. Sweetwater isn't the only place of global fiberglass as stockpiled blades. It has a total of 1,300 in Newton, Iowa, and two other cities in that state. After an investigation, the agency concluded in 2021 that there was no recycling going on nor was any likely to happen. So they declared that the uh, company was running an unpermitted dump. A dump. Leftists skirting regulations, contaminating the environment, polluting the landscape, all make this all to make a buck, you know. <laughs> then you got this guy named I think his name is Walter Bagahot beige hot, whatever it is. And he's not consistently a reliable mind given his uh, asinine issues with the U.S. Constitution. He, he's, he put it down because he says it's inflexible, which is sort of the point. But he did articulate what the residents of Sweetwater now experience. He, he once said, you may talk of the tyranny of Nero and Tiberius, but the real tyranny is the tyranny of your next door neighbor. The green aristocrat. They live and die by exploitation, by the, by the always constant stash. They don't even have to have political control. They'll just come and dump the garbage right there where you live and uh, you will like it. Or I, I don't know what else comes along with it, but... Here they are, showing up in a town, stacking all of these blades. What are they going to do with them? Why won't we turn them into plowshares? 
You know, they always talk about doing that to guns. Let's turn them into plowshares. I, what is a plowshare anyway? Somebody on the text line, tell me what is a plowshare? On the text line, couldn't dump them in the ocean for sea life. These GOP governors are just the best. I think you're sort of missing the point there. But if you're a leftist, I sort of get it. Because the point is never the point. You see, and this is this this this, this is true. On the text line, text line, texter gets this correct. Um, the only thing that renews itself is oil. Fossil fuel. It's constantly percolating. It's constantly got a new source coming in. We don't quite have the technology available to go just yet. So, uh, you know, why do this when we're going to be taking up? I mean, this is land, right? For those of you that are on the leftist green tip, isn't this land where a solar farm could go? Or did you decide to stick it there? Where are these blades coming from? This is the thing I don't understand about these things. You know? These governors of these states need to treat their state like they're in charge of it. And that means seeing to the benefit of the state. And the individual communities within the state. And if somebody from out of town comes in and starts doing this kind of nonsense, then they need to figure out how to get all of that stuff together and take it to their headquarters and dump it on the front lawn. It would fit. It might be a tall stack, but it would fit. What are you going to do with one blade being cut into this length of a school bus three times? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to repurpose that? Why are they made in such a way to where they can't be renewed, where they can't be refurbished, where they can't be recycled? Why are they made that way? Well, and I'll tell you, one, they're made primarily with uh, you know fossil fuel. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's saying the blades could make ugly, affordable housing. That take a that, that would be an ugly house. You're right. It would be very ugly. That would be very ugly. I, I just wouldn't want that. I I don't want that. Don't want that kind of a house. The doom loop is graduating to the mid-sized cities. Yeah. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. All right. I'm making faces at the camera. I should be talking. Such as it is. The Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. The, uh, we are streaming live on the WORD Facebook page. Let's see. I can't find the live stream on Facebook. Can I share the stream on my Facebook? I'll work on that. Just look up 989WORD on Facebook. though. That'll take you right there. We've covered the idea of the urban doom loop. In the big cities like San Francisco and New York. But 
the ones that are actually in the most danger of falling into the doom loop are the mid-sized cities like Indianapolis. There, the Salesforce, the technology giant, they're paring back a quarter of their office space in the tallest building in Indiana. In Atlanta, the private investment group Starward Capital defaulted on a $212 million mortgage on a 29-story office tower. And in Baltimore, a landmark building sold for $24 million last month, roughly $42 million less than it fetched in 2015. Since the pandemic drove a boom in remote work, places like New York and San Francisco have drawn attention for their empty offices and previously bustling skyscrapers. But it's the mid-sized cities that have fewer ways to offset the loss of the revenue. Right? When a major company slashes office space, the sale price of a building craters or a downtown turns into a ghost town. So if you've forgotten, and I'll be happy to reiterate it, there are basically three steps to the doom loop. Number one, thanks to the pandemic, people got used to working from home and most of them prefer it. This becomes a perk at many companies. Companies also benefit because after salaries, commercial real estate is their biggest expense. Reduced need for office space means they can save a lot of money by le leasing less space. Number two, the lack of workers downtown has a direct impact on other businesses that were based around the downtown foot traffic. Restaurants and boutiques and drugstores with less demand, some of them close and others struggle to stay, stay open. Number three, with fewer people downtown and secondary businesses closing up, the city itself takes in a lot less revenue, but still has the same amount of physical space it needs to maintain and keep clean and safe. Related city services like subway systems also see a big decline in ridership during the week, which makes it more difficult to keep trains running. Now, in the interim, certain things don't cease because cities begin to die. Like law enforcement should not be allowed to go down, right? You still got to have sanitation in these areas. It's called the doom loop because all of these steps potentially feed back on one another. Less revenue for the city could mean things are dirtier, less safe over time, or that trains don't run as often. And that in, in kind becomes another reason for people to avoid the area, which leads to more businesses closing. That has not happened all the way in any city yet, although San Francisco is getting real close. But mid-sized cities are struggling more than the big cities in general. The average delinquency rate across the 50 largest metro areas in the country is about 5%. But like in Charlotte, right right here in the, in the broadcast area, or Hartford in Connecticut, it's almost 30% according to data from the real estate analytics company TREP. Occupancy rates average about 87%, but in Oklahoma City, it's just 71%, 76% in Memphis and St. Louis. Now, of course, the market is going to respond to this lack of demand. Rents go down. Property valuations drop until they reach a point where they become attractive again, just like Detroit. But resetting the cross structure at a much lower rate they still have to provide the same service at the same price. The police and firefighters that are left are not going to take a 20% pay cut 
because revenue stops coming into the city coffers, which then leads the city into bankruptcy. What will eventually happen in a lot of places is what we're seeing in San Francisco right now. Owners will simply walk away from properties and turn them over to the bank. And this will leave banks holding a lot of downtown real estate that isn't worth nearly what it was when they loaned the previous loaners the money to buy it. The national banks will handle that. Regional banks could be in some trouble. Now, the big cities like San Francisco, San Francisco, if you can get past, you know, the, the zombies on the ground and the feces on the ground and the uh, and the hypodermics on the ground, still a beautiful place. Tourists still go. I know. I don't understand that either. Um, they can they, they have a, some other revenues to fall back on. Hartford, Connecticut doesn't have the same profile. When you go into a foreign airport, like if you're in Tokyo, there's not a travel poster for Hartford, right? <laughs> so, and as with everything, certain things actually arise that are always sort of interesting. In San Francisco, they have somebody has created a San Francisco Doom Loop street tour. That was canceled at the last minute, but uh, we get this. The Doom, the downtown Doom Loop Tour charged $30 to show the doom and squalor of downtown San Francisco, including its open-air drug markets, vacant office and retail spaces, and outposts of the nonprofit industrial complex. The organizer of the tour, who purported to be a city commissioner and the co-founder of a large neighborhood association, hoped to remain anonymous, which is why they said they could no longer hold the event. <laughs> So, in its place, somebody held a tour of the Tenderloin that was intended to put a positive spin on things. And they got an eyeful there, too, from the New York Post. Some of the homeless men and women laying on the street corners looked up in confusion as the tour group walked past them. Serena, a group member who brought snacks and water in her bag, stopped to give some of the homeless men and women some of her food. The woman, who was passed out on the ground, was so high on drugs she couldn't even lift her head to say thank you. Another man took a long, deep breath out of a pipe and blew smoke into the air. Still, the poster child of San, you know, of dysfunction, that's San Francisco. The doom loop. When we get back, I'm going to tell you about a leftist business that went the way of a leftist business. It's called Mina's World. Oh, my. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. This is the story of Sonam and Kate. You see, they wanted to uh, start a coffee shop, but they are two leftists. They are two leftists, so they 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 got uh, they got Kate's mom EJ to buy a building, and then they spent three years cleaning and preparing the site to open their coffee shop, which was they were losing money just I mean as soon as it happened, but. She wanted to do it anyway because she felt like it would be a way to give back to the community. So Mina's World finally opened on February 28, 2020, which was a terrible time to open anything. Now we get this. 
Mina's World, sitting on 52nd Street between Hazel and Larchwood, was founded in February of 2020 on the principles of social justice. The two majority owners, Sanam Parikh and Kate Egghart, defined themselves as queer and trans people of color and strove to make their cafe a safe space for others like them. They sold local artists' goods, covered community members' meals when they couldn't afford them, and offered lower-priced coffee in an effort to make often elitist coffee culture accessible to lower-income customers. They also fund and maintain the People's Fridge, a food bank outside of the cafe. Two weeks after they opened, businesses in Philadelphia were largely shut down, and Mina's World became a pickup window for coffee. They were required to wear masks when they interacted with the staff. You know, they stood outside. So the fledging, and speaking of the staff, okay, this is where it gets fun. They hired four employees, all of whom were trans and or black. These people soon decided they were unhappy with conditions at the shop and demanded a radical accountability process from the owners. They stated, <coughs> excuse me, we're facing systemic employer opposition, manipulation, abuse of power, exploitation, anti-blackness, ableism, hostility, and complete disregard for our livelihoods. Their list of uh, grievances and claims, anti-blackness in a multitude of forms and occasions, tokenization as a way to appear safe by association, ableism in the form of inaccessibility, etc., etc. One Alleged instance of anti-blackness was when a group of black teenagers stole the tip jar and customers ran after them to retrieve it and the owners didn't defend the thieves. And then in the same breath, while they were con- while the, the employees were accusing them of this, they also accused the owners of wage theft. <laughs> so the, the owners, they made a little video apologizing for their role in gentrifying the neighborhood. Promised to turn the store into a co-op, meaning the four employees would become co-owners. <sighs> but the plans to seize the means of production didn't go as smoothly, smoothly as they hoped because Kate Egghart's mother, EJ, decided enough was enough. She had bought the building and she'd been allowing Mina's World to operate rent-free. She's playing the electric bill for the people's fridge. She paid their insurance and did their books. And she explained on Instagram that the current business model of low coffee pricing, high labor costs wasn't sustainable. They were buying the best beans they could find and discounting them because they thought they would make up for each sale by in volume. So instead of allowing it to proceed, E.J. Eckhart put the building up for sale. Then the employees, remember the aggrieved ones, They accused EJ of being rich and responded by creating a GoFundMe campaign to buy the building. They sought to raise $200,000. The page read, the description on the page read, the workers of Mina's World have been put in a position that requires quick and precise action from community. The owner of the building Mina's occupies is selling the building as a method of retaliating against the workers collectivizing. We're in a position where we desperately need to save our livelihoods. If you have the means, we really hope you will stand in full and complete solidarity with us as workers. We're asking you to share this widely and support us in our need to build buy the building as well as the 18% of Mina's world that the owner of the building also owns. They did raise $10,000, but the cafe closed for good on July the 1st, 2022. 
So then the four employees announced they would just keep that money. <laughs> and they put out a statement. Initially, the funds were to be used to attempt to purchase the building Mina's World operated out of. Now that Mina's is no longer operating, the funds will be dispersed amongst the now unemployed workers, with a portion of it being distributed to local mutual aid funds and orgs. So when you have a leftist company, and then you go out there and you hire a bunch of leftist employees, uh, you're probably going to be eaten alive by your own. Because they're going to be aggrieved of you. Because guess what? When you own a business, you become the man. You become, you, you're the oppressor. Even if you're giving it away. Many leftists now see work. It, it's not a place to get things done for their employer. It's a place to test out their ideological issue. This probably happens a lot more than we are aware of, but, uh, you know, having said that, it's neither here nor there for me. I, you know, I sit there and I look at this and I was like, okay, this is what happens. This is why I say anything on the left is going to circle around and bite them on the fourth point of contact. Inevitably, it always does. It's always going to. It, it, there's, there's no other way for it to work. No, no other way for it to fashion. Eaten alive by their own. Oh, my goodness. Ronan Farrow decided to take on Elon Musk. Bring the popcorn and open the beer. That's going to be fun. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD, the voice of the Carolinas.